Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Not Ready for Rhyme Time. I'm your host, Taylor Woodland, and I had my submissions opened up and finally, like, hit those hard since I only had, like, a few left from the last round. And, of course, I'm filled up again within a day. I have over, like, 50, and they're still coming in. Yeah. I have been getting asked also about author features um, and getting your book featured on the podcast. I do do author features, but um, I have a very long waiting list that I am still going through. So if you try to submit for an author feature, I won't be able to read it for a very long time (laughs) since I only feature one author an episode. But enough of that. Let's get right on into some poetry because I finally have poems again. Woo! Our first poem is going to be sad. It is by, I'm sorry, I will not pronounce this right, Saida Bakhtar Jaffrey. The poem is untitled. Life is unpredictable and death is ruthless. Death doesn't have children. Neither it knows about love. When it claws its fangs in the delicate hearts, it can feel the pain of a mother. It can feel the plight of a lover. It washes away the castles of dreams like the ferocious tides of sea. It doesn't know the pain of nightingale on drooping away of fragile rose buds. It doesn't feel the suffering of the bereaved. Life is unpredictable and death is ruthless. That was a poem by Saida Bakhtar Jaffrey. It was written for Saida's niece, who died and would have been turning five this year in August. So yes, we started with a kind of sad one. Thank you, Saida, for submitting this poem. We'll move on into our next poem now. This next poem is by Bridget Keller. It is called Koi Fish. Koi Fish. Together we are frozen in a sea of dreams. We can see for miles. Little do we know, it's a pond of broken dreams. Same thing, day in and day out. We are just wasting away, just an attraction for the people. We are forced together. Maybe we belong together, maybe we don't. Why can't you see the universe is playing tricks on you and me? End of poem. That was Koi Fish by Bridget Keller. Thank you for submitting your poem, Bridget. And we'll move on into the next poem. I have a few for you guys today. (laughs) This next poem is called Death Came Knocking at My Door by J.N. Schilt. Death Came Knocking at My Door. Death Came Knocking at My Door. It presented itself with modesty and poise. I invited death into my home, my security and my shelter. Without hesitation, death walked right in. His world seemed enticing, promises of living in a world free. From great agony and silence, from what noise that's inside my head. Led to much deliberation, patiently he waited. How could one so weary and defeated resist? Beguiled, I took death by the hand, its touch colder than ice. 
I felt it burn down to the deepest part of my core. Death's fury ran through my fingertips, flowing through each part of my being. As I felt life pouring out, death filled me empty. I began to feel nothing, more than nothing. I was withering into nothingness. No! Before it could consume me entirely, I pulled my hand away swiftly. I cannot go through with this! I commanded death out of my home, my security, and my shelter. Slowly, he walked out, and I shut the door without hesitation. End of poem. That was Death Came Knocking at My Door by J.N. Schilt. I liked this prose a lot. It's very depressing, though. Please, if you are contemplating suicide, do seek help. At least that's what I believe the poem was meant to be talking about. Yeah, if anyone is contemplating suicide, please seek help. Professional help, more more likely, would be the better thing to do. Anyway, thank you, J.N., for submitting this poem. And we'll move on into our last poem for this podcast. This last poem is called Hard-Edged Sunshine by Casey Minzing. Hard-Edged Sunshine The dead, like sand and ash, moving through the city, are carried in through my open window. I breathe in the sand to fill the void, breathe in ash until my eyes close. Dreaming of centipede cobalt blue, my insides are rotting honey. I awake to violence, a fixed constellation of shouts, sirens, syllable clusters. Unsteady and apprehensive, I stagger into their orbit. I ignore even the casual warm glance. Too many shimmering, invented personas for me to take any more chances. Phantom smoke rises from a bird of paradise. The once was raised, built over, leveled again. Here, there is a long-standing history of trying to forget. We are forced to deal with the treachery of our complacency. Nothing has become what we hoped it would be. We are left to drown in the blazing sunshine, dehydrate in a torrid flood. End of poem. That was Hard Edge Sunshine by Casey Minzing. Man, all my poems are really dark today. I did put out that I was looking for horror stories because I'm hoping to bring back, if anyone remembers it, horror time from last year. So, except hopefully not to the extent of what last year's was, because that episode was two hours long due to all my submits. <laughs> um, thank you, Casey, for submitting this poem. It has a lot of good prose in it. All of my poems today were very well-written. I do appreciate that. Thank you all, my poets, for submitting your poetry, and we will move on into our short story section. Our first short story is called The Irish Nagel by Frank Sonderborg. The Irish Nagel By a blazing log fire on a winter's night in an old and oige hostel, we settled down to hear the story of the Irish Nagel. Seamus was an old Irish folky. He sang songs we all enjoyed as the fire warmed our faces and whiskey warmed our souls. 
Seamus could spin a tale with the best of them, but on that snow-filled stormy night he swore on the grave of his mother what he was about to tell us was true. He still shivered at the memory of his hitchhiking road trip along the Rio Grande. Seamus had been drunk when he was picked up. When the car finally stopped, he just managed to grab his guitar before the Vicoro all-hat-and-no-poncho drove off. His heart sank when he was told he was on Main Street, Juarez. He had meant to give Juarez the body swerve, a town with a reputation for people going missing. Death, he knew, came dripping slowly to the random victims of the drug wars. Tortured beyond any form of meaning, the powerless Federals outgunned, outbribed by the cartels. Seamus was broke, so he headed for the only place he could generate some cash, the nearest cantina. With any luck, he would soon be on a bus heading north to Gringoladaya. The bartender studied him with pity as he approached. Seamus went through the international language of travelers, pointing at his guitar, then taking his hat off, pointed it at the hat, then pointing at the stage. The bartender was drying a beer glass and said, Are you a simpleton, senor, or just loco? Seamus apologized and asked, Could he play and collect some morala? The bartender arranged a paid gig and took his passport as security for the offered beer and food. As Seamus ate, the bartender asked, You know who comes here every night? No. The devil, senor. And he sits and he listens. And if you do not entertain, he will consign you to hell. Sounds like a tough audience. They say he enjoys the screams of his victims. It is his favorite musica. Okay. Is there anywhere else with a less demanding audience? You play tonight, and if it please him, you live. No try vamos. He will find you. Seamus was shitting himself at this prospect of this gig of death and decided to vamos, like, immediately. He had no cash, no passport, and after one of his matter-off-the-grid moments, no plastic. Spotting a church in the distance, he made a beeline for it. The church, as expected in a city of impending death, was a moving experience. Seamus entered, sat, and tried to feel like a believer, but felt only the shame of the hypocrite. Someone spoke in Spanish, Seamus turned to see it was an old priest. Then, looking closer, he could see the priest was not old, just worn down. He reminded Seamus of someone, but he couldn't quite place him. Sorry, father. I've just arrived. I'm desperate. I need help. You're Irish. Me too. Name is Father Feel. So, you need to get out of town. I'm expected to play the cantina in front of the devil incarnate. Yep, I need to get out of town. You must play for El Diablo, was all he said. Then we can see if we can get you over the border. Then he left to do his rounds. Seamus sat in the church and pondered the life of a gigging musician. It was hard enough earning a hard crust without getting rear-ended with a hot poker as an added incentive. He now remembered who the priest looked like, but dismissed it as a ridiculous coincidence. The cantina was packed with a screaming, rowdy crowd. El Diablo was front stage, surrounded by his entourage. He was ugly and small of stature, as all these wannabe Santa Anas seemed to be. 
Seamus went on after a mixed text band singing a string of narco corrido songs in tribute to El Diablo. He went with Irish rebel songs to tame the beast in the room. Then he played Sally Gardens, a soft, powerful love song that could move the heart of a frozen mountain. Bad career move, as El Diablo rose and pointed at Seamus and stormed out of the cantina. Seamus was bundled off stage, punched and beaten into the back of a pickup, then driven out of town. Out in the mountains, a burning pyre, sharpened blades laid out on a table. El Diablo's crowd of Comancheros baying for fresh blood. Seamus lay where he had been thrown. A rough cross had been made out of slabs of wood. Seamus was berating himself. Should have stayed with whiskey in the jar. Juarez was clearly not yet ready for the message of love. A thunderbolt suddenly split the black clouds. El Diablo studied the darkening sky and pointed at Seamus. He was being dragged to the cross when he was suddenly dropped. The Comancheros were pointing at something and getting excited. Father Phil came striding through their midst and stood in front of El Diablo. El Diablo was frothing at the mouth, seeing his entertainment being interrupted. The heavens were going crazy as a wild wind whipped the black thunderheads. The lightning bolt seemed to come from the heavens, or the earth, or both. And there, in place of Father Phil, was a prancing black stallion. It rose high on its hind legs and hammered down on El Diablo, battering him to a bloody pulp. In panic, the Comancheros ran in every direction. Seamus ran as well, but the stallion came for him, and he instinctively knew it was his ride out of this nightmare. Seamus awoke to find Father Phil standing over him. Then, in a blur, he was a great golden eagle that flew away into the black night. Seamus retold this confused tell to the bemused U.S. border guards who found him. Irish, you've been drinking too much Chuco Mascal. There ain't no Irish priest in Juarez. Never has been, never will be. But a couple of days later, his guitar turned up at the Irish consulate, along with his passport. A note was included. It said, Stay safe and good Camino. It was signed, Phil. Seamus spoke at length to the shamans who traveled the border country, and they all agreed, Yes, the Nogol, the shapeshifter, can become anyone he wants. A great stallion, a golden eagle, and yes, even an Irish rocker called Phil Linet. End of story. That was The Irish Nogol by Frank Sonderborg. Thank you for that devilish little story. And we'll move on into our next short story. Our next short story is called the Last Day of the Woman Who Forgot Her Name by B.K. Forsyth. The Last Day of the Woman Who Forgot Her Name She observed the way his lips curled at the edges, not a full toothy grin, but a smile plastered with cheap cologne, something like Aqua Vela or some other Walmart Walgreens special and day-old body sweat crusted crystals along his hairline. She liked his eyes, light blue with a facing of blue topaz. She came here once a year. 
Maria's, a cream stucco bar with a cliché parking lot, catered to the uninspired would-be, achieved, and deceived. Business professionals who wanted to forget they ran the city played shuffleboard in the back, and an emergency room doctor posing as a kick-ass biker with too much ego, just enough money, not enough common sense, and even less compassion, chalked the tip of his pool stick and hollered out, Anyone for a game? Her ritual. It helped her to remember. So tell me about you, he said. His finger traced the length of her arm, around the elbow, and around the fleshy fullness of her underarm. His palm stayed there on the softness of the exposed, tender skin, as if claiming that spot now would tie her to him later in a darkened room in some intimate display of manly possession. Nothing to tell, she took a sip of margarita. Her tongue traced the craggy rim. She bit into a tiny nugget and savored the combination of salt and drink. He laughed. The laugh bounced in the bottom of his throat. Ah, he said. When a woman says nothing, that definitely means there's something. She pondered the statement. Maybe, she said. He found her attractive, and she knew that he found her attractive. So, woman with nothing to say, just say whatever comes to mind. The invitation beckoned like an open mailbox crammed with the unexpected. I knew a man. That's nothing new. Then listen, and I'll tell you a story. Look, sugar britches, I don't want to hear any damned story. She smiled. He leaned in, soaking up the space between their bodies. It's a good one, she said, and arched her eyebrow. Lady, you look real good to me. I want you ripped to the tits. The man snapped his fingers at the bartender behind the counter and motioned another with two-pronged fingers. His lips grazed her shoulder and lingered on her skin a fraction too long, a second more than polite, suggesting he could take another at any moment. Despite the empathetic dam splitting the blue haze, she said, It's about a man and his dog. The pictures were the most vivid. She had laid out three piles of pictures, narrowed remnants. She ran her fingers over images, black, white, color, some postcards. She memorized the eyes, the smiles, the arm around her waist, him with a raised beer. This was when she was four or five. Her mother had not yet married the man who would eventually become her daddy. This was the last picture she had of her grandmother of Sadie, her grandmother's cat, who became her cat when her grandmother took her last breath. This one of mom, dad, and three sisters was her most treasured. The pictures stared up from the blue-hued carpet. These were the last to go, and she wanted to touch each one once again and maybe again thereafter, to hold each in her hand, press it against the flesh sunburned across her cheek the skin across her v-browed chest and maybe to the skin of her lips her mouth skin wanted to drink in all the life or whatever small amount lived in the pictures red pushed against her body and her hand massaged his flesh solid beneath the reddish brown coat hey baby are you hungry you want mama to fix you something she unwrapped the steak from the white butcher paper 
Red's nose filled her hand. His tongue reached out to lick the inside of her and her wrist, and the licking continued until he found her neck and finally her mouth. "'You're my baby,' she whispered low, and Red's tongue covered her lips and cheeks and eyes. There was no picture of when he had come home drunk, and Red ripped up his arm. Fourteen stitches along a muscled forearm. Rough play until the play turned violent, and the hair on Red's neck stiffened, and Red did not see the man who lived there, or the man who sat slumped in his recliner night after night, but a man who boxed his jaw and intended to toughen up the eight-pound puppy. "'You'll hurt him!' she screamed. "'He's my goddamn dog!' he said, and he kicked Red in the side until the puppy slid across the floor and the pained yelp turned to a whimper. "'Do you understand?' He elucidated each word clear and distinct. "'My dog!' He kicked Red with my and then again with dog. Tears came from some distant place and her face was wet. She nodded. "'Your dog. I never said otherwise.' There were so many pictures of Red. She took each picture and formed a tiny tear along the edge. That is all she could do for now. Not more. Not yet. The smell of Red's steak hung heavy in the air, and he pranced, excited and expectant, across the white stone kitchen floor. She went back to the pictures. She stacked each pile together and then unstacked them. With a soft touch, she fingered the tiny tear, and with a sudden heave, the image gave way to a full-length rip across the face and body. She did each picture in quick succession before she could breathe or think or feel. Body parts lay scattered across the floor. Without looking, she scooped up hands and legs and faces and dumped the pieces into a black plastic bag. She checked red steak and flipped it on the grill. Clucking her tongue in a soothing fashion, Red's head found the palm of her hand, and her fingers curled deep into his fur, his tail wagging to the smell and her touch and the nearness of each. Nearly done, she said low. Her expression never changed. So tell me, where did you come from? I'm sure that I would have noticed you before. His palm burned into the small of her back. It's 2 a.m. and she is running down the alley. He chasing her, calling out, I'm going to kill you, bitch! He waving around a 9mm Glock in the August night air. The shot sounded like a firecracker and then a thud, flat and solid, off a dumpster, and her knowing that she was going to die and feeling numb. Numb to a bullet penetrating her body. Numb to the thought of tomorrow. Numb to the idea of dying. She running until her sides ached. She running until the air in her lungs were about to explode. She running until her legs grew shaky. She running until she could not run anymore. She running until she slumped beside the dumpster. The rotting smells made her gag, but she put a hand across her mouth and forced back the sound. She watching him run down the alley after her and she slumped low and exhausted and numb beside the rotting smells and she quietly gagging. That was after they had lost everything. She listening to the early morning groan of dying dumpsters. It seemed at first only money when he told her that he had lost everything. The bills exceeded an income of zero 
that didn't she know that someone as talented as him couldn't get a job with a bunch of losers? He was looking. Didn't he say he was looking? And why did she have to question him? It is only money, she told him. She told herself. Money is not everything, she said. We will be okay. We can get through this. It was later, much later, that she realized she had lost more than money, more than what it represented in some intangible way, but she did not know a name for it. And if she did not know a name for it, maybe the less than nothing really didn't exist, except she knew it did. Listen, she said. Oh, I don't want to hear about a damn dog. Let's talk about us, he said and nuzzled the soft part of her nape. She did not pull away. From the cabinet, she took a platter, a family heirloom that her great-aunt had once given to her to celebrate a beginning. Red stood on his hind legs, watching her cut up the steak into bite-sized pieces. Ready? She bent low and placed the steak-filled plate in front of Red. Red's ears flopped with each bite, one perfectly formed and the other slightly torn from when he took out a pocket knife and thought he would give Red a pert perky point. That time... Red removed part of his finger. "'I'm ready right now,' he whispered in her ear, her skin chilled with desire. The woman picked up her bag. He was there in the leather sofa like he always was. He had told her many times that if she ever tried to leave, he would knock her so hard that her heart would have to catch up to her head. She had tried, and each time he hit her until the blood flowed from her nose, from her mouth in a flood of blood and tears and snot. He would hit her until she could not get up, until she knew that this time was the last. "'Let's get out of here,' he said, and reached for his wallet. "'Someplace a little more quiet.' She smiled when she heard the line. It sounded like a script from an old black-and-white movie she had watched last week. No, she said and continued sitting. He looked disgruntled when she didn't move and pulled out his wallet. He had invested too much time to bail out so soon. Two more, he motioned to the invisible man on the other side of the counter, who was there and not there, just out of arm's reach, a word away. Okay, he said. He did not want to hear the story, but she seemed intent on in telling it. The woman squeezed the lime into the beer and sprinkled it with salt. The salt burned the tiny split in her lip, but she drank long and deep. I'm leaving, she told the man in the recliner. The man said, over my dead body. With a shallow breath, she pulled the gun from her purse. I'm going now. And did you hear what I said, he said. She believed him. From across the living room, Red lifted his head and wagged his tail at the sound of her voice. The trigger was easier to pull than she thought. She held the gun firm, and with a slight lift, one bullet followed another in swift succession. Red screamed and then slumped still. The man in the recliner jerked upright. "'I'm leaving,' said the woman again. "'You whore! If you think!' She pointed the gun at him. The man blanched white. All the color drained from his face, and the skin across his nose, normally a blobbed red, took on a cadaver pale sheen. "'I'm walking out that door.' You stinking whore! The woman pointed the gun at the man in the recliner. Any objections? If you do, tell me now. And then added in a softer, mocking tone, or forever make your peace. The man glared at her. You wouldn't be so brave without that, motioning toward the gun. In your hand, just wait. 
Are you coming after me? She fingered the trigger. In the movies, the trigger is held and released. We can finish all this now, she said. The gun gave her courage in the pit of her stomach, but her hands felt clammy. A wet patch in the center of his crotch grew and made more vivid the blue denim. A spreading blue denim pool. I'm walking out that door, and if you ever come after me, it will be the last thing you ever do. This time, the man in the leather recliner didn't say anything. He clenched his jaw and clenched his fist. The pea spot between his legs had grown to the size of a palm. The man on the bar stool halted his beer mid-arm. So where did you hear that story? Some crime drama? His speech came out stuttered and unsure. He laughed off his own remark, but she noticed that little beads of sweat had formed along his upper lip, and a sweat streak made its way from his sideburns to disappear in the day-old shave. When she turned to meet his gaze, the laughter dissipated. She tried to remember how exactly he left. He stumbled off the stool and fell back to where his feet could catch him. It was more of a backing away, an epiphany, or something re-remembered about someone from a long time ago. She downed the last sip of sangria, met the bartender's eyes, and shook her head no more. Instead, the bartender set down straight tequila with a quarter-lime wedge, a golden elixir accented with a green wane moon. With eyes level with her, he bent forward to where his cheek barely in the briefest second grazed a stray strand of baby hair unkempt and innocent along her temple what kind of dog end of story that was the last day of the woman who forgot her name by bk forsyth thank you bk for that little story <laughs> don't mess with people eventually they will snap Alrighty, guys, that ends our short story section. Thank you to our short story writers who submitted. We are moving into our final segment of the podcast, and that is our author feature. The book we are going to be featuring today is called Haunted by a Moment by Dora Bloom. The excerpt on Amazon goes as such. I don't know what you were doing at 17, but I was having fun, or ruining my life, depending on how you look at it. See, I don't make the best decisions. Duh, I'm 17. But mine tend to be off the charts bad. I woke up in the hospital after crashing a car, injuring four of my friends. I'm not entirely sure what happened. As I recover, I flash back to happier times with my friends, times before the accident. I have to deal with real life, though. Currently, my real life sucks. My friends were hurt badly in the accident. My boyfriend, who has leukemia, comes out of remission. On top of all that, my depression is taking over. How do I deal with all of this, you ask? Drugs, yep. Sex, double yep. Cause that psychologist they are making me go see is a quack. I don't care what my parents say. I'm not going to sit on a couch with a complete stranger and pour out my darkest thoughts. No way. The darkness is getting closer, and I'm not sure I can hold it back anymore. I'm not sure I care at all anymore. Will I get the help I need before it's too late? And with that, we'll get right on into our excerpt from Haunted by a Moment by Dora Bloom. Haunted by a Moment. Chapter 1. The hospital lights are blinding as I blink my eyes open once. 
quickly, then shut again. I take a deep breath, and the antiseptic smell is prevalent. The combination of alcohol and talcum powder sims my mind through a flash of memories. What am I doing in the hospital, I think. A shiver runs down my body, and I open my eyes again, braving the fluorescence. I examine my surroundings. People are walking quickly around me. Few even notice my presence on the gurney. The hallway is filled with people. I am the only one on a gurney. Hello? I call out. A nurse points in my direction, talking to a young man with a scruffy brown beard. Go talk to her. Keep her awake, the nurse demands as she hurries off to the next room. Hey, I'm Sam, the beard says. He smiles, and I couldn't help but return such a warm smile. Then I remember why I called out. I'm cold. I glance down and blush. Can I ask where my shirt is? I'm lying on a gurney in the hallway, topless. Oh, yeah, sorry. They had to cut it off you in transit, he smiles again. At least he is looking at my eyes and not my chest. Do you think that I could get a blanket or something to cover up? I'll check. He walks back to the nurse with the stern voice and finger. No, she can't have a blanket. She's in shock. Don't you know anything? She scolds loudly and goes back to organizing the medical supplies in the cabinet. He walks back over to me with slumped shoulders and rosy cheeks. She said no. You were in shock earlier, and so we can't change your body temperature. Sorry, he looks down at the floor. Seriously? So I get to hang out in the hallway shirtless? There isn't anything you can do. I'm desperate. I don't like the idea of lying here shirtless. I will try to snatch you something as soon as she leaves, he winks, and goes to check on another patient. Where is she? Where is Catherine? I hear my mother frantically calling down the hall. She's down here, a nurse says. I recognize the nurse who is holding my mom's hand. Perfect. That's my old boss, and here I am lying on a gurney without a shirt on. Hey, Mom, I say, smiling weakly at her. I know I'm in big trouble because no one ever wants to greet any of their parents from a hospital gurney, especially after borrowing your father's brand new convertible. Oh my God, Kate, honey, are you okay? She clasps my hand in an iron grip. Jeez, Mom, chill on the death grip, would ya? I'm okay, really, I'm fine. She loosens her grip on my hand. She takes my hand in both of hers and looks down at me. Really, Kate, you're reassuring me? You're the one on the gurney. She shakes her head at me. My girl, always taking care of me. I don't believe you're fine. I hear her near sob when she speaks, gripping my hand tighter in the process, like she needs to feel I'm still here. Where's her shirt? She demands, glancing around. Carol, the nurse she approached with, hurries away. She returns and lays a blanket over my bare chest. I breathe a sigh of relief. <sighs> Thank you. She smiles. No problem. She looks to my mom. Why don't we head over to the nurse's station? They're ready to take her into x-ray now. I'll bring you to see her as soon as she's done. The nurse takes my mom's hand and places a hand on her back, guiding her away from me toward the other end of the hall. Another nurse comes and wheels me into an x-ray room. She starts with my neck while I'm still lying still. After she determines that I don't have a spinal injury, I can finally sit up to do the rest of the x-rays. I want to scream out at the slightest movement, but instead I bite my lip until I taste the familiar copper of my blood in my mouth. Finally, I'm done taking x-rays, and I lay back on the gurney. The room spins, and I can hear the nurse say, I'll take you to your room, before everything goes black.
Hours later, I open my eyes slowly, expecting the glare from the fluorescent lights, but the room is dim. I hear the regular beat of a machine next to me, and I glance to look at the monitor with numbers and lines that, for the moment, are inconceivable to me. Cat, honey, are you awake? Can you hear me? My mom says quickly. There's panic in the swiftness of her words. Yeah, I croak. My mom holds my hand, the warmth in contrast to the cold, sterile air around me. I try to think back to what happened, but my head throbs and the room spins. My head feels clouded. I have trouble focusing on any one thought as things flash through my mind one moment and are a blur the next. I can't focus on one flash before it's gone, replaced by another. I look back to the monitor with the lines and numbers. There are lines and regular beeps. That's good, right? I think as I try to focus my attention on something I can understand. What day is it, I ask? Easter, my mom responds. Yes, but what day is it, I ask again. Easter, she says again. I blow out an exasperated breath. That doesn't tell me what day it is. I'm going to get the doctor, she hurries out of the room. I don't understand why she furrowed her brow when she left. The beeping is still normal, regular, like me. I'm fine. I'm sure I'm fine. I look down at myself. The IV line is running out of my hand and to the stand next to me. The drip is regular too, like my heartbeat. I scan the rest of my arm and notice blood on the sheet next to where my right elbow lay. I lift my arm tentatively and look at the spot just above my elbow. There's a gaping hole, and these cords are hanging broken outside of the hole. It looks similar to what frayed electrical cords look like. I reach my left hand over to touch them. Instantly, I hear my mom's voice. Oh my god, she cries out. I jump in response and look to the door. My mom is frozen, with her mouth wide open. The doctor scurries quickly around her to examine my arm. I hold my arm suspended in the air. His hands are cold as he turns my inner arm toward him to look closely at the hole. He reaches for the call button and hits it to get the attention of the nurse. What's wrong? I ask, looking at the doctor. We need to put a nerve block in your shoulder so you won't feel this, he says as he points to the hole in my arm. Is it that bad, I ask, still in awe, at the hole and the cord sticking out of it? I know I should be horrified, but at the moment everything feels so surreal. No, we'll put in a block so we can repair the nerves here. He points to the wires coming from the inside of my arm. Oh, those are my nerves. They probably shouldn't be on the outside, should they? I blink at him. No, they definitely shouldn't. He looks to the entering nurse. We need to put in a nerve block, and we may need to check her morphine levels. The nurse leaves the room. The doctor looks down to me. I smile at him. Within a few minutes, several other people join the doctor next to my arm. The nurse grabs the tube that is coming out of my hand and carefully inserts a needle into the tube. I smile again, and everything goes black. Hours later, I can hear my cousin crying in the hallway. She sobs and asks, Are you sure she's going to be okay? I open my eyes and look around the room. It's dark and empty. The monitor beeps in a steady rhythm. I glance toward the silver of light shining up from the bottom of the oversized wooden door. I look to my arm and notice that my arm has been wrapped in gauze. The tingling makes me reach to itch at it, but I think twice before doing it. I sigh heavily. 
As I listen again to the visitors in the hallway, I realize my mom never really answered when I asked what day it is. I looked at the board across from my bed. Carol is written next to attending, and 7.30 is written below my name. I take a deep breath and try again to remember what happened. I close my eyes to try to focus on the memories, but I only get flashes. I see myself laughing with my friends, then suddenly to another moment in a completely different car. As soon as that memory hits, like a flash, I'm in another place. Bell Creek, the skating rink that I've gone to every Friday for years. I can see the owner's face, frowning, and I can feel her disappointment like a weight on my shoulders. I open my eyes. I can't take the random, sudden flashes. I can't focus on any one thing for more than a few seconds, and I don't want to see that woman's disapproving face again. I look back to the light, hoping that someone from out there will come in here to check on me. It surprises me to hear my cousin crying. I know she loves me, but honestly, Melinda is the last person I thought I would hear crying outside my hospital room. I look around my bed to find the remote for the television. It registers for a moment that I should be feeling pain right now, but I don't. My head feels cloudy, and I know I've been drugged considering I don't feel any pain. I hit what I think is the power button on the remote and stare, waiting for the ancient television to power up. When it does, I can barely register what the people on the screen are saying. I reach to turn up the volume so I can actually hear what is going on before I start flipping quickly to find something bearable to watch. Infomercial after infomercial fills the screen. I realize it must be late. Why is my cousin here if it's so late, I think. The lights from the hall increases as the door opens. My mom looks to the television, then to me in the bed. How are you doing, honey? she asks as she reaches to grasp my hand. Fine, I answer automatically. You've been out for a long time, she says. Oh yeah? How long was I out for? I ask, now curious about the voices I heard in the hall. Maybe there was a good reason for Melinda to be here so late. I glance down to examine my body. It's weird how I can see myself, move my limbs, but still feel disconnected from myself. Like I'm both in my body and outside of my body at the same time. I look back to my mom, and her brows are furrowed again, and I know she is worried. The dark circles beneath her eyes let me know she hasn't left my side, no matter how long I slept. You've been sleeping for about two days now, she answers. Whoa, I slept for two whole days? I say, unbelieving. Yeah, how are you feeling? Should I call the nurse? Are you in any pain? Her questions come one right after the other, with little breath between. No, Mom, I'm fine, I respond. What happened to my arm? The last thing I remember, they were putting in some kind of block, they said. Why did they need to do that? I could remember what the doctor said, but not much else. Oh, they needed to put in a nerve block. You had some nerve damage from the accident. Nerve damage? What does that mean? I ask. I move my right arm up just to make sure I still can. I feel a shooting pain in my shoulder and cry out. It's not my arm that hurts, but my shoulder is killing me. My mom rushes into the hall. I need someone in here, she calls down the hall and takes her place next to me. The nurse comes in and goes immediately to the IV and monitors. She looks them over. The steady beat quickens as the pain increases. The nurse leaves and comes back with a bottle and a syringe. She plunges it into my IV and I look up to her. 
Seriously, my shoulder is killing me, I say before everything goes black again. Hours later, I wake to my mother's subtle snoring from the chair next to my bed. I look to my arm again, and it's still bandaged as before. A nurse wheels a cart to the door, and I hear her trying to quietly get her supplies. She comes in and sets a container next to me on the bed. It has vials for blood, packages with needles, and tie-off band-aids. Ah, yes, the 4 a.m. blood run. You must be my nightly vampire, I say. I'm not sure why I remember that they take blood every night at 4, but I do. They've done it at the same time every night I've been here. I don't remember much of my stay, but for some reason I remember that. Ah, yes, I love your sense of humor despite everything. She smiles at me. Ready for a poke? Yes, can't really feel anything anyway. I look to her and laugh again. I can't help it. I laugh any time I'm nervous. You might feel this, she says as she plunges the needle into my arm. The vial fills with blood and she pulls it out and inserts another. You must be good at this, I say. I have been taking your blood every morning, she replies. Normally, it takes several pokes before they find a vein. I look to her as she finishes and holds the cotton ball against the crook of my elbow. Hold this, she says, and grabs the tape from the container. She wraps it quickly around my arm to keep the pressure. I have been doing this for a long time. You get good after years of practice. She leaves, but before she closes the door, she asks, is there anything else you need right now? I could go for some ice cream. Can I get some, or is the kitchen closed? I think I can get that for you, even if it's closed. She smiles, and this time it reaches her eyes. Thanks, I say, and she closes the door. I try to recount how many days I've been in here, but it's a blur. I've been sleeping most of the time. It's useless to try to think back to the accident. Every time I try, I get weird, disjointed flashes that I can't quite put together. Everything is so jumbled, so I don't bother. It might be a while before I'm able to remember everything, if I ever really do. The brain has a strange way of making it difficult to remember certain things. I keep seeing my friend braced against the tree, the car on its side, and I hear my own uncontrollable laughter. I'm not sure why those are the pieces I remember right now, but it's all I can put together. I wonder if I will ever remember more. For now, it feels too daunting a task to try. End of chapter one. And that's the end of our excerpt of Haunted by a Moment by Dora Bloom. You can check it out on Amazon. I will leave a link for that in the timestamp. It currently has four stars on Amazon and you can get it on Kindle Unlimited for free. Feel free to read it and check it out. Thank you, Dora, for submitting your book for our author feature. And that ends all our segments today. Thanks again to all our writers, poets, and our author who submitted. I will have more for you next week since my inbox is still getting submits. Woohoo! Yay for that! This has been Not Ready for Rhyme Time, and I have been your host, Taylor Woodland. Remember, mind the gap. <laughs>